By the way, I picked I picked the uh, the emoji that felt the most enlightened to me. Check it out. And <laughs> was it the like? No, it's like the emoji? beady little eyes with the tongue sticking out. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, uh, so a lot of people do the like purr hands emoji. Yeah, yeah. I always use that one for thank you. Oh, that's fair. That's what I say. I, it's like gratitude. Thanks. I just, if I'm lying, I'm lying. I don't think I've ever used the per hands emoji. Not. Really? I use it all. It's one of my most common ones because I do it as like, thank you. I appreciate you. And I also do, I also do fist like this direction for <laughs> um, like respect, like oh. respect. And yes. I don't know if people get it because I sometimes are like, I wonder if people understand what I mean by that. Like, my that's what I mean. most used emoji that like, it's like heartfelt deep, makes sense to me. I'm going to make sure my Facebook page is muted. Is the octopus emoji that I mean deeply is like the the most so octopus emoji will mean hug with so many arms. It'll mean that. The octopus emoji will also be like oh excitement with so many arms like like Kermit with eight arms, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh and and kind of like oh yeah I feel you I feel you and celebration both of those wow that is a diverse things. that's a diverse can I share something personal about the octopus emoji sure <laughs> so uh, first of all this this requires a slight bit of preframing I had a conversation recently where I was asking my wife do you think I should let people know that we're in a polyamorous relationship because I sort of just drop my wife, blah, 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 blah. And my girlfriend, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if people are like, I'm <clears throat> sorry, what, <laughs> what, what, what did you just say? And you don't really have a reaction. So they must be like, he's, he's probably not cheating on her. What the fuck? Did he just <laughs> mix that up? Like what's going on? Yeah. So anyway, at one point, Lindsay, my girlfriend found out that octopuses have three hearts. <gasps> And so the octopus instantly became the symbol of our thruple, like our little, like multi-armed and limbed three-hearted creature that we have become. So we're all going to get tattoos with um, an octopus, various tattoos, different tattoos, but we're all going to have an octopus featured in it. That's amazing. Yeah, the octopus is fascinating. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, we should, we could probably get started now. <laughs> Yeah, we have a few eyeballs. I love it. Yeah, Welcome. I love so, it. So you want to go? You, are you going to do your prep? Should we wiggle? Yeah. Oh. Get yourself in state. All right. I like doing Ooh. this part publicly. I, I got to <laughs> say, I do. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Okay. All Three, right. Two, one. Hello and welcome to the Enlightened Couch Potato Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rave, and this is my partner in crime, Adrienne Gunn. Uh, and here in this podjack podcast, <clears throat> I could speak. Podcast. We <laughs> we sure. spend uh, every week talking about uh, how to watch movies and TV for maximum psychological and spiritual development. That's Word. our goal here. How to TV deeply. We like to say that we like to think about movies and TV way too much and yep. take it way too seriously Absolutely. because we have found that stories of which movies and television are arguably the highest form of 
telling stories are highly transformational and that we're all watching them anyway. So -hmm. you might as well leverage it into something that can make your life better. Yes, absolutely. Utilizing television as a tool for transformation. I'm excited today. Uh, If we momentarily, I hope this worked out, play uh, what is under your sweater today. Oh, oh, yes. Oh, oh, never mind. (laughs) All right. I am sporting. Today I am sporting the one of the uh, slogans from the show, The 100, From the Ashes We Will Rise. I like it. I've been wearing it a lot in these times of whatever this transformation is going to be for everyone. I, I know that I am utilizing it in slow motion mode to discover who I want to be and also to, to cultivate my most resilient self. Whatever that means. That means a lot of different things for me. And this is an opportunity where all of the busyness and things I was doing for money all canceled on the same day and hour, which meant that I could really focus on the impact I wanted to make and how I wanted to show up and thinking about in all as much as I can, what way can I cultivate my life and how I business that is you know recession proof pandemic proof Mm. who can Mm -hmm. i be that allows more resiliency for me we're all having to figure that out to a greater or lesser extent i think the phoenix Mm. is arguably one of the best archetypes to focus on right now in this time i've said i've told so many hypnotic metaphors about the phoenix recently to my clients and myself <laughs> wow. um, rise from the ashes this is the burning yeah yeah well in that particular story is they return to the earth after it's had a nuclear fallout like a, yeah yeah um any anyway i also one of the things from the ashes we will rise and, and returning to the world i chose to return to a show that I love a lot. Yeah, what have you been week. watching, Adrian? I've been watching Legends of Tomorrow. And I don't know if I've brought up that show. You have. <laughs> have I? Well, with you, mm-hmm. but in the show. I think you have. Okay. So Legends of Tomorrow is uh, the third baby of the DC show Arrow. Arrow birthed a bunch of shows. Uh, Arrow birthed The Flash and then Legends of Tomorrow. Flash and Arrow birthed Legends of Tomorrow. Then the CW adopted Supergirl as it left, I think, ABC. And then Batwoman and uh, Black Lightning are also newer shows that showed up in that whole like DC comic TV CW world. I think all but one of those is Canadian produced. I don't think Supergirl is Canadian produced. And so oh, Legends- I think it is. I think it is because Kevin Smith um, directs episodes of that and he goes up to Vancouver to direct them um, at the same place that he goes to direct uh, Flash episodes, which he has also done. I think it's shot in Canada. Oh, but I don't a, but think it's not the showrunners and the writers are Canadian because there's okay. a very different take flavor in there. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll look it up. Yeah, you could be absolutely right. It is. Very... I never got into I, I the only one I ever got into was Flash. Mm. Um, and I watched several seasons of that, yeah. which was quite fun. 
Well, so Legends of Tomorrow is this gentleman, Rip Hunter from the future, gathering together a bunch of powered and talented people who wouldn't necessarily be missed from the timeline for reasons to try to save uh, I think in the first season, it's Vandal Savage who wants to take over and conquer and destroy the world or something like that. And so he, he gathers <laughs> together a group of people to save the world, the future world. And they travel throughout time to try to stop this person. Now, the first season, I, I started watching back because I've really wanted to get people into this show. I love it. I think in this DC comic world, Arrow season two and Legends of Tomorrow season three are almost the perfect seasons. Arrow season two is amazing because they're all of these just badass women that didn't happen on TV before Arrow season two. We It's mm. a lot more popular now to just the villains are females and the heroes are female. Like, but Arrow was, it was phenomenal. It was like new to have mm. so many amazing women kicking ass. And that season has amazing arc. And then Legends of Tomorrow season three is one of the, I think it's a perfect comic book style season. Hmm. And I think it's because they really decided and they figured out who their talented people were. The hmm. first season, I think they were taking themselves a bit too seriously. Hmm. And in season two, they kind of shake that apart and it becomes more, uh, they're not so precious with their characters they they're more revealing of the connections and the, and and it's more of an ensemble and they're getting to, you know like they're getting to know each other too in a deeper way and playing into their skills so i've really wanted people to watch this show but i didn't know how to get them into it because all of the characters co come from somewhere else like oh, Thera right. lance one of the main characters she is heavily in season two and three of Arrow. There's a lot of arc for her. And mm -hmm. some of the characters came from Flash and they kind of have an arc. So I wasn't sure if it would make sense. And so I started watching it again because I wanted to return to a love. I just felt kind of nostalgic. I think I started the week listening, doing a uh, listening party with friends of one of my favorite albums. And I was like, why don't I just jump in? And... Something happened this week. I was watching one of the episodes and there's a character who grew up without a father and he was told that his father shipped off uh, to the army. I think in one of the, like the first Iraq war, I think is the timing of this person's age. And, and that he he never got to meet his son. That was a story that this child, this guy grew up with, that his, his father never got to see him. And they they happen to be back in the past, and he has this opportunity to meet his father hmm. as a I don't know twenty two ish year old version of, of himself. He gets to meet his young father. It turns out his father was in the hospital seeing the baby. And before this scene started, when I knew that this character was going to see his dad. Mm. I started getting choked up and my body started sort of shivering. And I, I could tell that I might need to pause the show to have a good cry. And this isn't the first time this has happened for me. I remember once upon a time, 
has all of these instances where parents <laughs> Wait, die. Hold on, hold on, hold what? on. You're talking about the show called Once Upon a Time. Yes. <laughs> it just sounded like you were just like, I remember Once Upon a Time. <laughs> and you were just going to start telling another story. <laughs> yes. The show Once Upon a Time has one of their biggest themes is orphans because mm. fairy tales are full of parents dying. Bambi is full of parents dying. The stories that we've told children that we grow up around someone I'm Frank. I think maybe somebody has like up like, uh, like paints and they have colors of telling a heightened story. And I was like, well, I think we need to kill their parents so that they have right. some trauma to recover from. And that makes them more interesting. So yep. I think it's partly that. And then potentially people used to die more way back in whatever days that, that it was common for people to be orphaned. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, I have both my parents. And this was years ago. I was like, why am I so affected? And it was like sobbing. And I went to the gym for, with yoga and I was like driving back from that. And I realized I think, like I was remembering back, I used to have dreams that my father would die in a house fire. Mm. I remember back to being in public spaces like the, the fair and being separated from my dad in that panic and or the, even the grocery store for a while. Not, and I was like, well, there's there's something deep in here. And I was like, wait a second. We're all technically orphaned from the womb. At some point, we are complete with another person. We are we are inside mothers. At this point in our lives, we don't have the like incubating backpacks yet. At this point, we have this perfect environment where we're getting all of our needs met and everything is beautiful and we're deeply connected with another person. And then in the birthing process, however it goes, cesarean or vaginal birth, we are expelled from this delightful place. And then there are those people who have spiritual beliefs wherein when they are spirit and energy before they come into the, the womb space, they are connected with everything that is in the universe. And they are now separated to, to do the human experience. That's this massive separation. And I was like, I think everyone has this orphaning wound, this separation that happens when we're birthed into the world. Um, and so every time that comes up now, I just get a little bit excited about getting to, to heal more of this, like, oh, like the reunion moments or getting to connect with that thing that we're disconnected from. Yeah. The way like, that I talk about this, <clears throat> this kind of universal loss, I love the uh, Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. As the metaphor, the expulsion from the from paradise is birth. And yeah. uh, I've heard it said that um, I've seen memes online that um, talk about make America great again mm -hmm. and that they're they go back and show how this is not a new phrase that people have been saying this basically since the beginning of America and since way before then that there's literally like phrases that are like make Rome great again mm -hmm. and it's like almost identical and it's it's as if people have this feeling inside that sometime back there things were better and now things are shitty and yeah. like we got to get back to that place and why is that such a universal thing 
I think there's a strong case to be made because everyone is craving the, the everybody is mourning the loss of paradise, that place yes. where for nine months you didn't have to do anything. You didn't even have to chew your food. You didn't even have to suck to get your food. And I've always, I, I, I like to say it, like I believe that everybody has a chip on their shoulder about being alive. Yes. That yeah, it's like, you didn't ask for this. I didn't ask for, I did not ask to be born. And when you're, and, and then you're like, okay, well, nine months, I got used to this place. This is all right. I guess, I guess if this is existence, I can handle it. And then holy crap, like <laughs> the world ends, like you die and then see a light at the end of a dark tunnel. <laughs> and then you are born into a new, scary, cold, loud, bright universe Mm-hmm. And um, and then you have to like work to make things happen. Like yep. now I have to suck to get food and like, ugh, this, I did not ask for this. Yeah. And I have to walk. Yeah. I think we've talked about it as like life resentment mm-hmm. is a, is a state that people get into. I just was reading a book. I'm reading a book right now called the reluctant shaman. Ooh. And there was this story in there of, this this woman who's being trained by these elders, the ways of shamanism, they they give her an experience where she sees a scene from five different view like points of view and has a deeper understanding. And it's one of those scenes where there are Native Americans, I'm assuming. No, let me not assume. I have no idea. There are hunters of a deer. There's a hunting group that that is with a deer, and they they have an agreement. The, the, the thing she sees in this vision is that there's an agreement that happens between the deer and the hunters, an exchange mm-hmm. where they, the deer agrees to be fed and move into spirit world. And I was just thinking about this orphaning. One of the last time I was talking to a friend about this, this core wounding, she brought up you know, the next womb is the earth. Yes, yes. And I was like, oh, and it made me wonder in times when people had a different relationship with their environment, with weather, with the earth, where, I mean, we have some documentation of people who lived in more of a connected space with their environment and this this bigger mother earth and they call it mother earth that provides uh i wonder what happens like is it 1500s ish maybe it's earlier because pagan cultures are dying earth earthbound philosophies are dying around like eh, when the father became the only one we're allowed to acknowledge right Right. I have a I have a wondering about how they felt in their embodied experience, whether they felt disconnected from a womb or if they felt as though they, they came into a new mm. womb that was the earth. Cause because they utilized their humanness in their bodies in different ways. They could tell when weather was changing, they could feel and hear war parties and that like they just had different sensory experiences yeah. that we don't utilize now. Yeah, uh, that that idea of like make the world. I've heard this described as the journey of the magician, um, meaning like 
to become a sorcerer or sorceress, to become the, the kind of creature that can make the world into what you want it to be, mm-hmm. um, for you at least, um, is about growing so that you can make this womb as perfect as the one you were in before that that when you think of something it happens and that's what learning to be better at manifesting is about and learning to be better at clearing your baggage so that you're not uh, bringing in the shit that you don't want yeah Um, and I, i think something else about this core wounding that's pretty huge is i think that we have a deep desire and longing to reach that mutual connectedness that we had in the womb that I, I guess mothers who give birth to other people may then re-experience what they experienced as a child, as an infant, like, like fetus or whatever we call it. But I think that there's like this, this craving for that. And the only time that we come close to that kind of uh, like connection where the systems are feeding each other and they're deep, like inside each other and that sort of thing is sex. Only I don't think most people are having that kind of sex. I don't think most people know that that kind of sex can Mm. exist. Mm -hmm. I think, I think there's something in how we sex that is about like a compulsion and a, and a, and a craving. And, and I think, uh, in the U.S., there's a there's a way that it, that that we recognize that exists, but that, that kind of communion and the obsession for it, but we don't cultivate the language and philosophy around it so that it can actually be achieved. And it's not the story that we're told about sex, right? Right? It's well, there's so much misinformation about sex and there's so much shame and like sex is the primary way that you that the population is kept under control. Like if you want to if you want to control an animal, you castrate them. So you can you can spiritually, psychologically and emotionally castrate an entire culture by making them ashamed and afraid of sex and by and th- that stuff goes deep isn't that also in the garden of eden suddenly they're naked they, yeah the the they they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they saw their nakedness and felt ashamed so like there's so much depth you can go into about what that is like the, yeah. that is to me the awakening of the judgmental critical mind and that's not necessarily a bad thing but it does mean you fall from the bliss of being in the present moment of being Mm -hmm. able to be fully and completely surrendered. Um, My favorite way, simple ish way to describe that kind of sex that you're talking about, the kind Mm -hmm. that changes you, the kind that um, most people don't even know is possible. Where they have deep connection. Yeah. A a really simple way I think to think about it is it's sex on all chakras Mm. that most people barely have sex on the, in the first, second chakra. Um, Some people can get it all the way up to their heart, right? Um, But a lot of people who have a lot of very heart-centered sex aren't good at incorporating the third chakra, which is about power 
And like, that's scary. Like no power, please, but just love. And that's, but, and it's not to say the love isn't an important part. There are levels of, of sexual experience you cannot get to if you can't bring your heart to bear. Mm-hmm. Your throat chakra is about truth and honesty and, um, and vulnerability and sharing. Your, your third eye is about the imagination and bringing in magic. And then to me, the crown chakra is about spirit and purpose and um, bringing in the idea of healing and transformation. And like, this isn't just about sex. It's about something bigger. And yeah. I think the kind of sex you're talking about that most people don't know is possible. Um, one of the simplest ways I know to think about it is it's not just genital it's <laughs> all of them. It's, it's, yeah. and it's two people doing that together. Yeah. It's connection with all of yourself, connection with another person who is connected to all of themselves and the both of you having a union and connection to whatever is above a bond. Yeah. Up whatever you want to call that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, spiritual. So, so that's actually a pretty good segue into into mine. I don't know how much I'm going to have to say about this because I didn't realize before we started that you haven't seen this. (laughs) So you knew it. uh, So the new Frozen movie came out a while ago, um, and I haven't seen it yet. Um, Because every time I said, "Hey, the new Frozen movie's out. You want to watch it?" My wife said, "Oh, I haven't seen the first one in a really long time. I got to go back and watch it." And I was like, "I've seen it. I don't need to see it again." So recently, we were listening to. Do do you at least know the song "Let It Go"? The one that that's Uh, completely fucking crazy. Okay, yeah. yeah. So uh, we were we were listening to that song. It was playing in the background, and I started singing along to it, but I was making up the lyrics. And I don't remember when or where in it, but I was basically singing, this song is about orgasm and nobody realizes it. <laughs> and um, and then, like, uh, my girlfriend was like, oh, my God, I've never thought about it. Let it go. Let it go. Like, that, it's about, like, no, I will not let that, ver- I won't, I, no, I got to keep that under control. Like, no, that, that energy inside me is dangerous. Like, I can't let it out. Yeah. And that's why that song is such a power ballad. It's such a, like, like liberating thing for so many people who listen to it. And so she was like, wow, I never thought about it that way. And then like a couple days later, she and Liz sat down and watched the movie. And like halfway through, Liz paused it and was like, oh, my God, Nicholas is right. This whole movie is about sex. <laughs> the whole movie is about this. Like, if you think about the, the, the her ice powers are like these powers that she can't let out because she's hiding them and, and they're shameful. But then also ice is the um, the economic product of the whole kingdom. So if you if you think about the kingdom as being like your inner world, your the, yeah. the whole kingdom. Oh, you haven't seen the movie. Why am I doing it? Yeah, I'm like <laughs> usually not inclined to watch these, but now I'll watch it because I have a new preframe for watching it. It's it's I, I got to say it's good. It's not Moana. Have you seen Moana? Yes. Okay. Moana, I can't, I can't watch five minutes of that movie without starting to cry. That nope. movie is Me neither. so frozen. It's good. Moana is, is on a next level. Moana is like one of my favorite movies of all yes. time. It's, it oh. is, I, I think the best, uh, one of the best representations of the hero's journey period. And right. by far the best version of the hero's journey with a female protagonist. 
Right. And then so many themes about loss and change and traditions Ugh. and oh that movie. Yeah. And who the, who the villain really is and whether they're actually villains. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It gets me. I, I guess talk about it when we so figure out how we're going to screen things. We'll we'll include Moana on our list. Oh we'll my god! Yes. Yeah, which is <laughs> like I can't. I don't have anything to say. Doing, it's so beautiful. I was doing sound for some ballet company, and I think it. I think the first time I watched Moana, I watched it in Spanish. It was playing in a park. It was in Spanish with subtitles, English subtitles, and I still sobbed my first <laughs> off. And then I watched it again later uh, on the prompting of, of Liz. I watched it again with myself and I still sobbed in the middle of this park with people. Ah. But I was doing sound for this ballet company and I, I don't remember which song it was. But it was one of the songs, and I was just like, okay, I'm just gonna need to have tissues next to the soundboard every time. <laughs> and it was always like the moment that the grandmother sings, and I'm just <laughs> I know what moment you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I don't, don't ever want to get to a place where I am not that affected. Do you know what I mean? Like that's, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things you've talked about. You and I have talked about as far as the mission of enlightened couch potato is like, you want to learn to let yourself be more hypnotized by the things you're watching. You mm-hmm. don't want to become cynical. Like ideally you want to be able to turn it on and turn it off. So you can, you can separate and be critical if you need to be, but you can also go like to, I surrender, like take me on a journey Like, give me all the feels like I trust Mm -hmm. because it the one of the keys that really clicked it for me is it was realizing I'm not saying I trust the filmmaker. I'm saying I trust my own unconscious mind to take anything that they give me and do something positive with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking today you and I were we're going to create a, a way for people to, to just install this way of watching shows. We're working on that behind the scenes. And one of the things, <clears throat> oh, I might, I might start choking. <coughs> <laughs> Stay alive, Adrian. Stay alive. Right. Please. <clears throat> this trust your unconscious. It's the coronavirus. <laughs> no, it's a ridiculous tea leaf in the back of my throat. Oh, okay. The, <clears throat> that's not where that's supposed to go. So one of the things that I, I do in my process, in addition to trusting my unconscious, I have a realization about myself that sometimes I'm a little hard headed and what probably needs to happen. If I'm going to ask my unconscious to help me have a, have an experience that's, that's useful to me. I'm like, well, so you've met me. So you know <laughs> that <clears throat> I'm giving you permission, unconscious mind. Just light up what I need to see. Make it loud, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Make it obvious so that I can't possibly miss it. Yeah. Trumpets, glowing, and, and it happens sometimes. And I'm yes. I'm on on my couch and I'm watching the show and it's just like, oh, cool, I'm watching a show. And then suddenly, yeah, the room gets weirdly bright and halo-y. Yeah. 
and the screen gets like, did I turn up the volume? No, no, yeah. I didn't turn up the, yes, I did. I turned up the volume yeah. so that this moment in here, more, not out there. <laughs> yeah. Ethereal and real and, and mm-hmm. like meant for my good. And I'm like, Oh, this super works. This yeah. is a great agreement I've got going on. Yeah. Liz likes to say that it's those moments when all of a sudden you feel like the, the movie is talking directly to you or the mm-hmm. character in the movie is like turning and looking through the screen and saying, this is meant for you. And like, my view of that is that it's not necessarily the filmmaker. It's not any, it's not the writer. It's not the person who's the entity that is talking to you in that moment is your own unconscious mind saying, this is important. Pay attention to this. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so much easier, especially those of us who are from cultures that haven't prioritized a relationship with emotions. Mm. We, we don't, have a relationship with our with our emotions and their usefulness and how they work generally when we're watching something we're watching people in heightened states in heightened uh experiences right because that's what we've decided is most entertaining so these harrowing experiences where people are the most emotionally expressed right that they could be right so what's amazing and is part of how hypnosis works and processes work is, is, and part of how this works well for people is that you get to indulge in somebody completely and fully dropping into and experiencing their emotions in a way that we don't often allow for ourselves, but we have the mirror neurons to be able to, to, to yeah. allow their heightened expression to become our own. Mm-hmm. And for me, TV, movies, those were the only times, I may have said this before, those were the only times that I would allow myself to cry. I would find Mm -hmm. myself crying during a show and experiencing something deeply. And I was like, oh, and I I got to let myself off the hook, you know, and boy, boy world, this would be awful and terrible and I'm being bad, but it's a movie. It's not, they're doing it. I didn't do it. I, I have I'm not responsible. Yep. Yep. I was the same way for a long time. Yeah. And it, and in a sense, like you crave that because we all need it. We're, we all have those emotions inside and like learning to respect and trust your feelings to me it is about like, I don't care what brings it up. If something brings it up, it needs to come out. So yay. Thank you. Like I'm encouraging that. Yeah. And sometimes be- sometimes there's a switch that shuts off in us. Uh, Like our walls come down around a subject when we're not talking about ourselves, when we're watching someone else go through something that makes it easier for us to get the deep learnings because there's one level of of disassociation. Oh, this isn't about me. This is about them. And then your unconscious is like, oh, well, actually that situation is kind of like our situation. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like, have you talked recently about how metaphors work and why they're awesome? Not on this podcast. Do you want to? Because I I like that level of, I'm going to say disassociation because that's a jargon word for you and I. That's how hypnosis works. (laughs) Where, you're, you're slightly separated. So you don't have your own ego or boundaries or barriers around what's happening because yeah. it's not directly about you. Yeah. I mean, there's a 
bajillion different ways and reasons why metaphors are powerful. I, I have this sitting here on my desk in a stack of books that I'm reading right now, this book called Therapeutic Metaphors. So obviously I can't share everything in here about metaphors, but, and um, one of the ways that metaphors are super powerful, like for anybody who's ever tried to give someone advice and they're like, here's my problem. And you're like, well, here's what you should do. And they're in, they're immediately like, oh, that's not going to work for me. That's, um, a kind of critical resistance that gets put up when people are afraid of making the wrong decision, when they're, there's a lot of reasons. They're feeling anxious, whatever. The, the, the boundary conditions of the problem they've got going on have defense mechanisms put up. So what a metaphor does is it lets you bypass all that resistance because you're just like, well, you know, it reminds me of a story. And then you start telling a story and the person's critical mind shuts off just like it does when you're watching a movie and you're really enjoying the movie. You're not sitting, hopefully this, by the way, is why people don't like movies where the moral is to beating you over the head with it because it doesn't let you experience it as a metaphor. It's more powerful when it's non-directive, when it's like, I'm just telling you a story. You take from it, whatever you want. That's one of the weirdest things about metaphors to me was this idea that when you're telling a metaphor, a metaphor is a story that has multiple layers of meaning. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this secret to telling good metaphors that when you construct a metaphor, you come up with what you think it means. But the, the weirdest thing is it doesn't matter if that's what the person who's hearing the metaphor takes away from it, mm-hmm. all that nobody, you could tell a metaphor that you had an, a specific secret intention for, and you could tell it to a million people and not one of them ever got what you meant. But <laughs> it's simply the fact that you had an idea in your mind of what it meant that makes it a magical metaphor. Yes. So, that's such a weird idea to me. And that's it. There's a kind of like almost artistic letting go that you have to do where you're like, I don't get to decide what other people are going to take from this. I'm going to make something that is, and it's going to have, it's going to be meaningful to me, mm-hmm. but I don't need other people to get my meaning from it. Um, I want other people, this is why I, I think it's so interesting that like the Wachowskis who made The Matrix were very adamant once the sequels came along that they didn't want to do any interviews. They didn't want to do anything t- where they had to talk about what the movie meant right. because they did not want people to go, oh, well, that's what they said the movie means. So therefore, that's what the movie means. End of discussion. Now I don't have to think about it anymore. But when they go, I'm not telling you what it means. You figure it out. Yeah. Then you can you can read deeper and you can read deeper and you can read deeper into it. That is, remember where you're going. I want to say this point. That is one of the, I don't think it's a secret about musicians and songwriters and performers. It is one of the special sauce that needs to be there in a performance from a person for them and each night maybe they pick a new intention i think it's a secret. i don't think most people know i don't think 
as a performer, yes, it's your job to take care of the audience, but it's also your job to get yourself off first. That's really yeah. important that you are yeah. deeply open and connected to the moment that you're creating in the song. And a lot of songwriters do keep a, a lid on what their own internal picture around the song is and their felt experience. But those mm -hmm. that, that are the most emotive always find a way to feel it first and, and be very clear in their, in their person about what they're expressing. And then the next half of that is that there's some level in which they're, they're in rapport with every single human that's in yeah. the room. That's and the then other they part go of on the, the journey with them. Because mm -hmm. I think comedy is really. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I, I think comedy is a really obvious place for me to see that work or not work because to it, it clicked for me when you look at the greatest comedians, the ones who can get up in front of a room. I mean, like Dave Chappelle comes to mind. Like the thing about Dave Chappelle is when he's on stage. He is having a fucking blast. Mm -hmm. Like he is having the time of his life up there. He, he the reason why people go into hysterics where that you like can't breathe with some comedians is because the comedian is so good at feeling those feelings. You go out on stage, you get everyone in rapport and then you say, follow me. Yeah. And then you go on the journey you want them to have. Yes. And then they experience everything you feel. Here's a question for you. Yeah. What about someone like Jimi Hendrix? Do you think that the reason why people love Jimi Hendrix playing is because if you actually get into rapport with it, you feel heroin? <sighs> As a musician, I'm, I'm, I think that's what happens, but I'm curious, you know more about this than me. <laughs> I think so. I have challenges around some form of music that seems more cerebral than mm. the kind of performance that I was describing before. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. We're... Where when you walk into the room and you sit down, there's a group of mus musicians that are blowing each other with their instruments, but there's this wall at the edge of the stage Ooh, and we're yeah. all peering in on it. I know exactly what you mean. That is a style of music. And often I think, you know, symphony can be that way. I know a lot of jazz can be that way. So I, Jimi Hendrix is interesting because a lot of his people were already taking some substance. Right. And I recall him as mostly a closed eye performer in what I've mm -hmm. seen. But I do think that there's a thing that he does of being fully deeply into his music and being in a trance. And I don't know what he did to get the audience to also join him there. But I think you're right. I, there are there are bands from the 70s that I cannot listen to the original bands doing their songs. I can listen to other people doing their songs because it gets me so in rapport with what I experienced as one of my past lives overdose and dying. Wow. 
uh, Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. I cannot listen to more. I, I had to work my nervous system into being able to listen to a song at a time, like a song. Cool. I'm safe. But if a second one comes on, I'm like, eh. and yeah, there's this, there is a way that the, the psychedelic nature reminds me somewhere of maybe someone in my lineage, or maybe I did have a past life where I did yeah. not make it. I mm. died of a heroin overdose and and that is what that music just brings up in me. So I think you're right that there's some aspect of what they're creating that when you get in rapport with it, it's heroin. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get that thing about like some music, like where there's like an intellectual barrier um, where you have to like, but, but I, I wonder if that's just like some people, cause there's, I've had experiences of music that I didn't get. Mm-hmm. And then somebody was like, no, 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 let me explain this to you. And like, it wasn't like an explanation in a verbal sense. It was like, you have to stick with it for a while. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I get it. And it's, it's almost like learning how to dance with Mm -hmm. a partner and you're learning how to dance with. And I think this is true about shows and movies too. I I told the story about um, disjointed that, that show that I think is like on the surface, it's so stupid. But then if you realize that it's like in on the joke and there's like something happening, it's so hard to explain. But once I got it, I was like, Oh, now I know how to dance with this. Mm-hmm. And um, I wonder if my my general belief in life is that all tastes are acquired tastes right. and that you can acquire any taste you want. You just can't acquire every taste because you don't have time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but if you really determine to figure out why somebody loves classical music, you can learn to appreciate it and you can learn to go to places. Classical music is a really interesting one because I often think about what would it be like to spend every day of your life working in the on a farm or like shoeing horses or sh- some shit like that and you almost never hear music and then one day you somehow save up enough money and you really and you go and then there's this symphony and it's mm-hmm. like angels like yeah. what is this wall of sound that i i don't uh, when i think about that I wonder like if part of the problem with like classical music is that we, our brains are too overstimulated in a lot of ways that, um, that like, like I have a hard time appreciating ballet. Like mm-hmm. I understand the art, the artistry of it and like the difficulty, but like sitting there for an entire ballet is like, <laughs> and I like dance. It's just yeah. ballet is like, <sighs> yeah, I get the sense that, um, Symphonic music, classical music is going inside ourselves together that that the the collection of all of the instruments being orchestrated in a particular way is taking a world of many voices because our world has a different vibrations and things. So it's like it's like mimicking the world outside our internal world in all of this instrumentation and and that when we're there it seems to me appropriate to be closing our eyes going inward in a shared experience yeah. of music representing life, the way that math tries to represent life. Yeah. And then when I think of sometimes something that's more cerebral, when I'm being nicer about it, I think of 
some versions of bluegrass and some versions of jazz. The ones that aren't specifically designed for dancing is like watching people have a conversation and occasionally can turn into watching people have sex. So it is sort of watching people do something with each other and there's there's sort of a distance and that could be entertaining in the same way that like people that. watch podcasts like well, they're watching us they're yeah. watching us do this this is right. not unlike jazz but it's not for dancing right it's not that, intended for that right that kind of bluegrass and that kind of jazz where mm -hmm. they're they're soloing back and forth and you can hear them listen to each other and they're creating something new in the moment each time so uh, let's circle this back around yeah. to like movies and right. and tv well we were on metaphors yeah, I, I did. Was there more on that? I felt like I, I. You felt like you finished done. that? Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I was. I wanted to to circle back around to like movies are things that you have to learn to dance with too, and mm -hmm. um, and I think generally, unless you're the one making the art, you are in the to use the dance metaphor analogy. You are the follow. Yeah. When you're watching a movie or when you're listening to music, like the the your ability to enjoy it is your ability to surrender to it yes and to let it lead you someplace and again that point that i made before is it's not about trusting i, I when i first started toying with these ideas of like there's the, like movies and tv are deeply profoundly hypnotic and they can install things in you i got scared for a while and i'm like well what if i what if i'm not sure what secret messages that the that the filmmaker put in their movie like yeah. should i stop watching movies entirely unless i know the filmmaker like so that i know the person who wrote it and i know everything that they put in it yeah and then at one point it, it i i it became clear that it's it's not about trusting the filmmaker you're you're basically trusting how good at, at putting you into a trance is the filmmaker but then what you take out of it is up to your own unconscious and how much you trust yourself. Um, yeah. That meaning making machine. Yeah. And we could go, we can do an entire episode on the way that your unconscious is always filtering for the things that you want already. So even if the, the person made the film with a specific intention, unless you have receptivity for that, it is, mm -hmm. it is going to be like blind to you. You will miss mm -hmm. it, which is why it's often fun to go back to things. Oh, I, I was going to mention that when you mentioned you went back to Legends of Tomorrow that mm -hmm. we believe very strongly in re-watching things. And I, I was thinking back to like early childhood stuff. Like, have you ever noticed that little kids have a tendency to like find a movie and just over and over and over and over? And I did that. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe today one of the things we've lost in this golden age of stories is that often there's so much new stuff to watch, setting aside the time to go back and rewatch something. Like I'm rewatching Farscape right now for the third time through this yeah. like seven season arc um, with like mini movies at the end and stuff. Um, and I love it. And I'm getting so much more out of it this time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's even like a touchstone in my life to be like, what did I get out of it then? And that's relevant to like who I was then. And I'm seeing it differently now and going, oh, I'd never noticed that the last time. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I also yeah. find that I have a deeper appreciation for the things I disliked the first time through. Like I have a deep mm. appreciation for the for characters I may not have been drawn to originally. I rewatched Arrow all eight seasons because this was the final, this autumn was the final season of the Arrow was done. And I was like, oh, I want to go back and just remember this journey. And a lot of amazing things happened in my life while I was watching that show mm -hmm. in real time. <laughs> so I remembered aspects of me that came up in the show. And there were a bunch of things I was super grumpy about when they were happening in real time that once I watched again, one of the things that existed for me is I, I didn't have any resistance to it because I already knew it was a thing. So mm. I got to appreciate it on a different level because I didn't mm -hmm. feel so actively like, what are they doing with these? I wasn't so precious with where yeah. they're taking the characters like that. That bandaid had already been ripped off. Right. And so when I went back, I got to appreciate these choices in a different way to let let them inform where the whole story was going, because I was at the point where this story is coming to an end and it makes sense now. And you're more relaxed, more surrendered, more mm -hmm. open, less critical, and you can enjoy it more, yeah. which uh, I'll reiterate that beautiful word to enjoy something is to be in joy. And that necessitates surrender. I'm not talking to you, Adrian. Yeah. You know. <laughs> One of the things, and maybe we'll leave with this thought is we talk about surrender. I heard today being in a mode of, of receiving, being in a receiving mode, becoming receptive. One of the things I used to say a lot before I would turn on a show, in addition to just having this intention of letting shows move me and change my life, was this phrase that somebody who's one of those uh, well-known uh, law of attraction kinds of people, this idea of pre-framing your experience, my favorite thing she offers is something amazing is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I wake up, something amazing is going to happen today. And having my mm -hmm. mind primed to expect and appreciate and enjoy something amazing happening. There was a while where my, my press play intention was, Oh God, I don't know what it is, but something amazing is going to happen. And then I yes. would just drop yes. it to the show. I love the word priming to describe that. Um, cause like it's, it's priming yourself to, to see something, to, to set an expectancy about something and just giving yourself that kind of suggestion. I mean, we've talked about it too, that like one of the most important lessons to get to make movies and TV tr more transformational for yourself, more valuable for yourself is simply to open to the idea that they can be transformational yes. that thought alone to be like stories can change you so why not make it change you as much as possible mm -hmm. um yeah. dare we say the thought that they can be transformational transforms your experience with tv and it doesn't matter whether you believe that or not what you could try just for the sake of fun, is pretending that's true. Mm -hmm. Pretending Beautiful. that television and movie can be transformational for you. You don't have to believe it. Just for just, a game, just, just for fun, just pretend that's something you believe and then see what happens. Yeah. 
the pretend frame. We should do an entire episode on that. <laughs> okay. On that note, it's yeah. two fifty. I think we're good. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Uh, we love that you're here. We're glad to hear from you. If you want to send us messages on the face place in the enlightened couch potato page, you can send us messages and uh, like comment and subscribe. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there's nowhere to subscribe. I'm kidding. <laughs> Go forth and TV deeply. Yes. Yes. That's good. All right. See you later. See you next week. Bye-bye.